The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. reconnaissance because Downard's home in Chattanooga where I'm from was right down the street from where my aunt used to live so I know that I know that area pretty well one of the things that I figured out is that you know he's he's born in Ardmore Oklahoma and that name was very very familiar to me because my mom was born there so they were about the same age so it is conceivable it is entirely conceivable that at some point they passed each other a street in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Yeah, that's uh, it, it, it is entirely conceivable. They played jacks and together. He was also at Fort Oglethorpe too. So I mean, I know that you know, I know where all that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there are there are just. I think one of the things that interests me um, about the whole downer thing is just that every time you're looking for something and I just find out some new thing that doesn't make sense or some other kind of twist. And um, I don't know, are we, are we recording now or? Yeah. So, well, in terms of downer, I mean, what more can possibly be said about James Shelby downer? Well, I'll tell you one of the things that just kind of came out of the blue that I wasn't expecting and another sort of facet to the whole sort of downer saga. So, you know, the, the stalking the great whore, the interesting title of the book is all about his, his one and only an ex-wife. Okay. Mary Ann Parton. That was her real name. She seems to have dropped the Mary at some point and just went by, uh, by Ann without an E. And so she becomes the kind of central focus, the kind of, you know, central demoness of his whole life. The, the woman, you know, the, the ultimate sort of femme fatale. From, from Downard's way of looking. But then, of course, she after she divorces him in the early 1950s, she marries a, uh, a fellow who's a, a hotelier uh, and also a writer by the name of Alan Whitworth. And something that I sort of recently, what I wanted to talk about last time, what I thought might, you know, might actually be kind of interesting news, was that Alan Whitworth and Anne had a daughter, and I was able to locate her and talk to her. Now, she was born in 53. So this, uh, this, this is, you know, cold calling people in research. I've done that before. So yeah, you never yeah. quite. So I, I was kind of fortunate. I, I got her phone number, actually her work number. Uh, she runs a business. And, and I called up and I was actually lucky in that I got the answering machine because this allows you a certain amount of distance. So I introduced myself. I said, you know, I'm. Uh, I know that you're the, the, the daughter of Anne Whitwer, and I don't really, what I want to talk to you about is, is your mother's first husband. And I'll just say these three words, and then you can decide whether you want to call me back 
or not. I said, James <laughs> Shelby Dowder. I said, thank you. And she called up. And she was very, you know, very forthcoming. You know, her, her basic view was that uh, I never met him. You know, my mother would talk about him on occasion. And the one thing I remember her saying on more than one occasion, not too surprisingly, was that, well, he lost his mind. So her mother basically said her first husband went crazy, uh, that they had a very contentious divorce and sort of troubled relationship. You know, they were married for the better part of a decade. So it was a, it was a fairly long relationship. But there, but there seemed to have been, as I've been able to piece together, they broke up and got back together on different occasions. So, for instance, they get back together after the divorce because they get divorced in Florida in 1945. That's all a matter of public record. But then, begin looking around, you realize they're both living in Phoenix, Arizona, around 1948-1949. I can't place exactly when they got there, but certainly by 49 or 50, they're both in Phoenix. She's working, by the way, for the Arizona Department of Public Construction, and he's an inventor. But I thought, well, they're both living in the same city, but they're living together because the daughter, um, and to sort of protect her privacy, I'm not going to mention her name, but I found her. So if anybody's interested, you could probably find her as well. Is that she goes, he goes, what do you, do you know about, you know, you know about their relationship with, with the architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, and, it, and his, his wife, uh, Old Havana? They became really close friends with him. Now, Frank Lloyd Wright, or the, you know, is, is a major figure. Yeah, in American architecture, and I, yeah. you know, never run across that at all. Yeah, and I go, well, what was the connection? She goes, well, you know, Downard and and, and Wright's wife, Olga Vanna, shared a common interest in metaphysics. And what would that common interest in metaphysics be? Well, Olga Vanna Wright, before she married Frank Lloyd Wright in the twenties, was a follower of the Russian guru. Uh, by the name of uh, George Gurdjieff, who, by the way, just to put it in here, knew Aleister Crowley along with everybody else in the world yeah. at that time. Uh, so I don't think that's terrible. But she, not only was she a follower of Gurdjieff, she was his private secretary for a while, one of his dancers. And uh, she came over with Gurdjieff to the United States, and it's in a story in its own case, but I think that what Gurdjieff did was to basically point her in the direction of a wealthy American architect, and, and thereafter, one of the things she did, did was to try to get uh, right to funnel money into Gurdjieff's fellowship, and, uh, and, and, they, and they established a, a Wright's own fellowship as well. So that was the kind of combinator that somehow... Downard and Olga Vanna Wright met in Phoenix, uh, and they shared a common interest in metaphysics for a time. Uh, the other thing that uh, that the daughter mentioned was that, oh, yeah, and, and they, they also shared a common interest in breeding Doberman dogs. So there's something else you can add to James Shelby Downer's list of dubious achievements. Doberman dog breeder. But it's another one of those things. It is his connection to Wright is another one of these things that suggests that he's not quite as fringy of a character as you might assume. Mm, he yeah, did yeah. actually know some people uh, of, of importance, and uh, so it was interesting to talk to her. Uh, a couple of other things she shared. She she did mention, and this is here's her words that her mother was very cryptic about her early life and didn't really talk about it very much. 
So, for instance, the daughter knew that her mother and Downard had divorced. She really didn't know when. She seemed to think that they were still married at the time that they were in Phoenix. So they seem to have gotten back together and then separated again. So that, that I think that in some ways that sort of touches upon what his fixation with this, this whole relationship was. Did you and, tell her about your mama? Well, you know, I didn't mention the book. <laughs> I said, hey, you know, there's a, there's a book on your mother and it's titled. No, that would have been, that, that might have set things off the wrong, the wrong direction. Um, you know, I, I could agree. I said, well, you know, if your mother said he was lost his mind, I mean, there were two stints in mental hospitals, which, you know, kind of suggests that that might have been what was uh, potentially going on. So, uh, I, you know, that's another one of these little discoveries that sends things off a whole different road uh, than what might have had previously. Wow. So I'm going to try to dig into that more and try to figure out more. You know, who else? There was a whole circle of people run right. Um, they, they, the Taliesin West, which was his headquarters. And there was a whole circle of people. I think at one point she mentions, yeah, he was the downard. And and Anne were part of this Taliesin circle of people. So who else was involved in that might be interesting to know. You said it's how do you say that? Well, I say it Taliesin. Taliesin? Taliesin. It's it's the name of a house that right the original Taliesin is in okay. Wisconsin. Okay. Yeah. And and then he built another place in Phoenix, which he called Taliesin West. Okay. So they sort of spent their winters in Arizona and their summers up in up in Wisconsin. Well, yeah, I mean, since yeah, uh, Stephen in his know. presentation last year, Surfiel talked about the Taliesin house in Wisconsin. Yeah, there's, there's a, a lot of Frank Lloyd too, Wright's right? work in Wisconsin. There's a very famous Greek Orthodox church in Milwaukee that's designed by Frank Lloyd Wright up there. Well, and we know well, it's something about Downard because he wasn't so marginal and just being the son of a wealthy father put him in the society pages when he was a kid, which is where, you know, you were able to find a lot of stuff initially. But of course, this is all about uh, your essay that has been kind of like an evolving thing that's uh, now called Limbo of Lost Memories, Searching for James Shelby Downard yeah. and is uh, in the afterword of Stalking the Great Whore that uh, Adam Go Riley compiled and did the forward to, but uh, can you talk a little bit about the the history of this uh, this project and this this manuscript? I think was it in Paranoia Magazine first, or yeah, I first showed up there. Well, it all got started on it the same way that I get started in a lot of things is just to try to figure out if there's a there there. And so one of the questions about Downard was did he did he actually exist? So, you know, as you probably know, and as many listeners probably know, there was a a pretty you know, active theory at one time that he was a literary creation, that he was a character. You know, usually the people that got roped into that was that he was in some way a literary creation of Adam Parfrey, Michael Hoffman, uh, William Grimstead, maybe others. Okay. I'm not indicting any of those. I'm just saying that that was often the view that he was that he was that he wasn't a real person. Well, it was kind of an interesting way to test for that. Uh, you just started looking at public records. And some people leave a lot of traces in public records. Some leave a few. But if you are alive for any length of time, if you look through things like 
census data. You know, the U.S. Census is, is a great guide to what people were doing every decade or so. Uh, you know, general public records, Social Security Administration, military records. Thanks to a lot of those records now being digitized, they're much easier to search than they used to. And the last but by no means least, newspapers. Okay, so not everything that shows up in the newspaper is true, but it's in the newspaper. It's some kind of, you know, it, it's it's an actual artifact that that person was there. So I started looking, and it didn't take very long to figure out that, yeah, there's a real guy. And, in fact, there's sort of two of them because he's actually James Shelby Downer Jr. So you've got his father as senior, and that's why in some cases you have to be sort of careful which one they're talking about. And uh, and then what I did was to take the the kind of original or first volume, the, the, the Parfrey published uh, Carnivals of Life and Death, all right, and that's Downard's for the uninitiated, very bizarre memoir of his childhood up to his early adulthood. And but in that he mentions people and places. Okay, there was I went to this place, we lived here, we knew these people, so he mentions the names of them. So then what I did was to simply go through the book, looking where he says, you know, when we lived in Dallas and then we moved to Fort Thomas uh, and then we were acquainted with this with this person or another. My father was in business. My father held patents. And you begin to check that. And virtually everything, with, with very rare exception, that all checked out. So when Dowdard said that he lived in this place, he lived there. When he said that his family was acquainted with these people, that's that his father was in the in the asphalt business, he was. And of course, that raises a kind of interesting question. And if you want to assume that Downard is simply nuts, okay, that this guy is a raving lunatic and that nothing he said is reliable, well, in that sense, he is reliable. I'm not arguing that everything that this somehow proves that the more bizarre things he says are true, but it points up the fact that it's that he's not writing about an imaginary world of people and places that's all grounded in in reality in, in recorded in, in public records. So he was at least that sane enough in order to keep his life together in some kind of some kind of chronological basis but when you put all the pieces together i, I mean i don't know i mean it all comes down to it looking very closely at something and you could make a good argument that if you begin to look closely at anyone's life at the sort of public records that they leave behind them that you're going to find kind of odd things you're going to find certain curiosities, things that, that sort of fit, that don't quite. And you can also begin to uh, assume great significance to all of these things in one form or another. And I, in some cases, what Downard's life is getting is this kind of spotlight placed upon it in which every little detail, those that you can check in otherwise, are assumed to have some particular significance in some larger scheme. And maybe they do, maybe they don't. But there are a lot of curious things about it. So, you know, one of the questions uh, is that after, you can, you can track him pretty clearly up until about the mid-1950s. So, but the mid-1950s, I think as I mentioned in the, in the uh, limbo of lost memories, he's the partner with a chiropractor in uh, in Alabama, 
Okay, so he's doing business. He's running his sort of sideline of attaching electrodes to people's heads and having sort of, you know, what sound to me like, you know, fairly sort of quack machine cures in this case. And, and he writes, and he's very big, he writes letters to the editors attacking the medical establishment and, you know, praising chiropractic. And then he just sort of vanishes for a while. And so the best guess is that sometime thereafter is when he transitions to becoming an inmate of the Western State Military uh, Mental Hospital in Tennessee, in Bolivar. Mm-hmm. And how long he's there, which you'll notice that if you read through the the uh, Chasing the Great Whore, there's a, there's a place where he mentions he in there. Yep. Although he doesn't quite place himself there in some way. This is the interesting thing about now he'll he'll talk about places without actually placing himself there. Then he'll place himself in places that he probably wasn't. And, and he may place himself. Well, you know, on the other hand, he mentions going to Cuba. Well, one of the things the daughter mentioned was her mother told them that when when she and Downard lived in Florida, they used to make trips to Havana. She described them as vacations. We would take vacations to Havana. So he was there. So he says, if he's talking about Havana, you know, I don't know if there were shootouts the way that he describes, but <laughs> he, he was actually there at that point. So one of the questions is that, you know, he disappears into the mental hospital. When does he get out of it? And and there was this there was this little detail in it. It was in an obituary for his mother. So his mother, who I also suspect was probably maybe really the most important woman in his life. So, for instance, again, if you go through Downer's writings, particularly Carnivals of Life and Death, notice the fact that it's pretty obvious to the reader that mom's constantly trying to set him up to get killed. That's something which never seems quite dawn on him. So his mother dies in 66. And in an obituary, there's just the mention, you know, that she has a daughter, you know, and he has a son, James Shelby Downer Jr. in Columbus, New Mexico. Now, the thing is that I'd actually run across that obit at some point, and I noted down the Columbus reference, and I had forgotten about it. And so it came. So so now we got this kind of bracket. So we know that he's in Alabama around in, by, up to 55. And then the next place he seems he show, he's mentioned his living is in Columbus, New Mexico, about a decade later. So that then raises an interesting question. What the hell was he doing in Columbus, New Mexico? I mean, this, this is a place that's essentially famous for being shot up by Pancho Villa in 1916. Mm-hmm. That's, as far as I can tell, that's the only thing that's ever happened there. There aren't any kind of military bases around. There's nothing. So, what? But, you know, I guess he had his airstream parked somewhere. But here again, notice it, it's right on the Mexican border. In his writings, he also makes a couple of oblique references to something that happened in a Mexican border town. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also talks a lot about El Paso and the White Sands area mm-hmm. and that whole area of sort of far western Texas and New Mexico where you have, you know, the whole atom bomb, you know, atom bomb, Roswell, you name it. It's all sort he of within. to have this real vivid descriptions of the mexican underworld too like he's really familiar with it yeah i mean i would be reasonably sure that he had spent some time in mexico he's he's familiar 
with more that he could have gleaned, you know, from the Encyclopedia Americana in that case. He's been to Mexico and probably spent some time there. And now there's an indication that he lived right on the border. But it's also an, an thing that he'll, he'll, he talks about the goings on in El Paso, goings on around White Sands, never places him there. But now you know that he lived somewhere in the vicinity for a time. So that's another one of these little mysteries I'd, I'd like to know more about. You know, what brought him there? What was he doing there? How long was he there? Are there any mental there institutions? Uh, not, not in Columbus. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't seem to have been there. Uh, so is it some kind of, I don't know, is he just camping out? Um, his ex-wife never seems to have shown up there, so I don't think he was was following her. But then you never know. So that's an interesting type of thing. There's a, you know, I think earlier you mentioned that uh, during World War II, he's mentioned in a local directory as being uh, in, in the U.S. Army as an x-ray technician, which he was certified to be. So he went to, he attended a thing called the Gradwell, Grad, Gradwell Medical Technology College in St. Louis and graduated. And you found a description yeah. of employment on a census record, right? Yeah. Well, he's there. He lists himself, actually, on a draft record, he says that I'm an employee of the Gradwell School, but he seems to have only been a student. But it's a student that trained people to be medical technicians, x-ray operators and others. But then I know that he graduated because uh, the following year, I think around early, in 1941, there's a notice in the Cedar Falls, Iowa newspaper that the local hospital had hired James Shelby Downard as a medical technician, as a graduate of the Gradwell Academy. But then not long after that, the war breaks out. Um, it's interesting that if you look at the the draft card that he filled out, I think in late 1940, I guess in late 1940, he fills out the draft card. He doesn't mention having a wife. The next of kin that he puts down is his sister. So that's where I think that he and Anne at that point are separated. Then at some point they get back together. But you know, another little puzzle is that in 42, He's, uh, you know, living outside of Chattanooga, just sort of living. It gives his address, and his address is a house, right? So it's X-ray technician, U.S. Army, but he has a civil address. It's a house out in the country, just almost on the Georgia line, and you know, pretty easy access to Fort Oglethorpe. Pretty much right on the Georgia line. Yeah, it's kind of on the slope of Missionary Ridge. So how many GIs had a house that they were living in? Yeah. Why, why would he have been accommodated there? Uh, one possibility is that he was a civilian employee of the Army. He was a medical technician that was employed by the U.S. Army, but that he wasn't in uniform. Because a year later, in 1943, when the, year's still go when the war is still going on, he's out of uniform. Now he and Anne are back together in Florida and he's billing himself as Dr. Downard and she's essentially his nurse or his assistant. 
they stay together for a couple of years and they split up and then you know, the, the saga goes on goes on from there so there are uh, there are still questions that remain and then there are more that that come up so that's i suppose what makes it makes it interesting for me one of the things doctor that you talk about i guess it's a little bit of uh speculation but uh you mentioned carl tanzler yeah yeah uh, we might want to just say what carl tanzler is infamous for <laughs> Uh, Carl Tanzler was a man who uh, was deeply in love. He, he was a German, again, a German sort of medical technician. So he and, and Downer have similar backgrounds. They both live in the same area. And, you know, and keep in mind, that's one of those things that doesn't necessarily prove that much. I mean, this thing, you know, you can find that two people lived in New York City at the same time. Well, so did 8 million other people. So it doesn't, it it narrows down the range of connections, but it doesn't prove a connection. It just sort of tantalizes one. Uh, Tanzler um, fell in love with a young woman who died of tuberculosis, and he basically dug her up and, uh, you know, preserved her and kept her around uh, for years until that was finally discovered as well. It's your imagination, and you would be correct on what is uh, going on there. Well, whatever you imagine might have been going on. Think think of the grossest possible thing you could do a man could do with a resurrected yeah. corpse. And yes, that yeah. was going on. Okay, that yes. was, that was yes. what was happening there. And so it's got to be something that Downard would have taken an interest in. I find it odd in some ways that he doesn't actually, you know, not mention it in that case. But it's just, you know, I, I don't know. It's sort of like my mom and Ardmore. But at some point, they may have passed each other in the street. Mm -hmm. um, but one can't fail to notice the the common interests. Yeah, and yeah. things like that create a might just create a little side quest, even if it's tangentially related. It might lead you to find some other weird shit, even if it doesn't relate to Downer. Yes. Well, there's always that. You end up finding things, the, the thing that you didn't intend to look for comes out of it as well. Yeah. But then if you did find they were closely connected, what would that mean? <laughs> Where would you go from there? It's another rabbit yeah. hole to jump into. He definitely would have heard of it. I mean, I think that by then, I think all had been revealed about Tanzler at that point, because I think that was the 30s at all that that happened. Yeah. And Tanzler lived on for quite a while after that, but you know, it definitely would have been something that might, I think, as you speculate, that it might have influenced some of his more. As we made the point when the show with Go Rightly, that you know, there's a lot about sex in this book. Yes, like he's 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 obsessed with it, very much so. Sex, well, and sexual ritual, the, fertility, all that stuff. Yeah, the the sort of Masonic sex circuses that his wife was. You know, yeah. essentially, he portrays her as this kind of high priestess of this cult who travels around the country hosting what appear to be like you know i don't know what would jeffrey epstein make of it yeah right uh, all right um but this see this is this is as outrageous as some of that is you, you have to keep in mind that that in in describing let's say orchestrated sexual rituals that cater to the elite Downer's not talking about things that don't exist. I mean, those things do take, they may be at the fringe. You may want to think of them as the far fringes of, of, uh, of human society, but 
they are there. So he's he's not imagining something that doesn't have a kind of reality into it, separate from what from what he's saying in that case. Right. And that that to me is also one of the things that I, I that I think that in some ways sort of in intrigues me about him. And I, I think you have to be very careful how I'm going to say this. There are certain things, even among all the craziness that Downer talks about, that every now and then you run across something that is sort of familiar. Mm-hmm. That, I don't know, it, it has some particular resonance in a way. And the idea of, uh, you know, perverse sexual hijinks and rituals among what we tend to think of as the elite is, again, as current as Jeffrey Epstein and Lolita Island. So here's the question. That James Shelby Downard was paranoid and probably in certain cases clinically insane isn't necessarily an assurance that everything he's saying is untrue or wrong right Right. so that's the thing i mean we when i read carnivals of life and death which i did not get that far my impression of him and that's kind of confirmed in these writings in stalking the great whore is that he had this like targeted individual type of persona even before that was even a thing Mm mm-hmm like he was saying, oh, they're, you know, they're targeting me, they're after me, these type of things. And this was very much um, that way. And, and I do believe that there, I mean, I have looked at this myself and just like the targeted individual, this kind of phenomenon. I do think that people can be targeted, but they pick people that already are teetering on the edge and they just push them and, you know, they fall into this madness. And I think that Downer very much kind of is that type of person. Yeah, I mean, one thing, it makes anything they say deniable. Right. Because all you have to do is argue that this person was institutionalized, you know, that the appropriate uh, credentialed men in white coats deem this person to be a paranoid schizophrenic. So, So therefore, we can disregard anything they have to say, which you're right, in some ways makes them perfect test subjects. Uh, because you don't have to worry too much about who they go blab- blabbing to. And it's, the, 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 I think, to me, one of the most revealing statements, if there is a revealing statement in Stalking the Great Whore, and then these sort of lost writings, they gave me some kind of, you know, maybe kind of insight as what was going on. Where Downard argues that I, there was a certain point, he says, that where I realized that the memories that I had of my former life weren't, real and there would be these other memories that would come through and i would then was going to dedicate myself to trying to recover what the real memories were and so arguably what we're getting in his writings Mm -hmm. is his Mm -hmm. effort to recover right what he thinks are the real memories again he's not the only person who's ever claimed that this comes up again, the, the, the concept of can, to what degree can our memories be manipulated? Can memories be removed and can other memories be implanted? In fact, this is one of these things we start looking comes at fairly often. Yeah, my memories were erased and I was, and false memories were placed in. 
And then let's put this in the context that, you know, a lot of this stuff is going on in the 1950s and 1960s when what else was going on? Yeah. MK Ultra? Yeah. Right. Were, were, were people actually being subjected to, uh, well, were they being dosed? He claims to have been dosed with drugs, abulic drugs that limited his memory. And, you know, again, he's not talking about something that wasn't really going on, which isn't to say that that's exactly what was happening to him. But there is a, what he's talking about is not just his imagination. Yeah, there, there were nefarious governmental agents, you know, CIA, who were out conducting unlawful experiments, uh, psychological experiments, mind control experiments, manipulative experiments on witting and unwitting subjects. Something I think is really interesting with the things that you've uh, uncovered, especially recently, and some of the some of the weird hints in his autobiographical material in this new book also is whether he was on the other side of this stuff that he talks about prior. If he was a part of, of this underworld, you know, if he was actually involved in the occult and if his technical expertise was actually uh, playing a part in helping these efforts that he, you know, claims to later have been a victim of. And that's, yeah, that's something uh, I think was really kind of new. Um, you know, there's this period, um, I think it's like in 1945, when he splits with his wife, at least in, in you know, when the divorce comes along, he goes to Oklahoma City. And again, there are, there are newspaper advertisements. Uh, he becomes part of a private clinic. And uh, and there, there are ads taken out of the paper saying, you know, Dr. Downard is now joining our clinic. And what this clinic did, it was a private clinic that basically treated uh, alcoholism and drug addiction. But being as this was late 1945, there was a new clientele, uh, battle fatigue, you know, what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. There are a lot of guys coming back with a lot of head problems. And so this, again, was something that the clinic treated and doubted is specifically advertised as an electroencephalographer. See, that that's what's yes. And he was head of the clinic's psychosomatic department. So what he did, his device basically was a set, it was it was a set of electrodes you attach to people's heads and put current through that. You're zapping people's heads. So it is curious, as you know, the guy who seems to be talking later that they put the zap on my head was, in fact, verifiably employed at one time to zap people's heads. So is he is he actually sort of describing things done to him that he did to other people? Mm -hmm. So that's. But if nothing else, he knew what a good head zap was. <laughs> so he might have been aware when someone was doing it to him. With his wife, and he, she remarried to this hotel chain guy. Wasn't there some weird stuff that was going on? That at, at the hotel? That, well, I mean, just like yeah. I think so. I mean that that lent yeah, some sure. credence to the things that he was claiming about her. Well, he knew she was there. So down to you know, he actually mentions, I think, at one point, the Hotel Del Charo. So, but it's a very quick. So. She seems to leave Downard again 
she goes to he he mentions talking to the great whore that she was working at the Fairmont Hotel in in San Francisco, which she was because again there's another little newspaper item from a Reno Nevada newspaper that says oh you know Ann Downard is in town this week from the Fairmont in San Francisco. Oh, what was she doing there exactly? I don't know, but she he's right again. She was working at the Fairmont. But that article, I think, is like in, in February 52. And then at some point in that, she meets and marries Alan Whitworth by March. So it's a very and, and Whitworth describes he actually writes a letter to a friend of his where he's talking about he's just completely smitten by this woman, you know, almost like she put a spell on him. OK, I mean. He fell for her fast and hard, and she married him, and then he ends up as the manager of the Del Charo Hotel, uh, which is a you know neat little set of bungalows near La Jolla, north of San Diego, near the Del Mar racetrack, and it was the summer getaway place for, among other people, J. Edgar Hoover. So J. Edgar Hoover, the whole time the Whitmers are there, comes out every summer with Clyde Tolson and they have their bungalows set aside and they play the ponies and they drink and they hang out with, you know, various Texas oil men like, uh, you know, Clint Richardson and others. And, and Alan Whitworth, her husband at the time, later decided that the whole JFK assassination had been plotted under his nose at the hotel, which, you know, oh, yeah. it's just more crazy talk, isn't it? But it, um, but that was his. Uh, this, this this was what was going on, and 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 later she goes on to become a social hostess, and she becomes a. a, a I think after she and Whitworth split up, she goes to say, nearby San Diego, and she is the social director for the Kona Kai Kai Club, which again is a very elite Hawaiian themed country club on San Diego Bay. And there, after that, she, she ends up in a place called um, Rancho Santa Fe, for again, for the one or wherever, is another very, very wealthy, exclusive community. So she tends to hang out with, um, with rich folk mm -hmm. for the, the rest of her life. And, you know, I don't know, the same people that might be the constituency of Masonic sex circuses or not. You know, who, who often have fairs and celebrations and charitable events. And that could masquerade. be all masquerade bar parties. Um, you know, she's also on the library board. But uh, but you know, here's, you know, going back just a minute to the whole thing about Frank Lloyd Wright and his wife. Yeah. They were married in La Jolla, which is right to La Jolla, California. And they, they vacationed regularly at Rancho Santa Fe. And they, they had an acquaintance with this place before Ann Downard and Whitriver did. But what what is all this action tend to center around that area? I mean, how kind of interesting that you find out that Frank Lloyd Wright and his, you know, Gurdjieff spooky wife have a connection to the same the same place. Yeah, that's also where you get Downard, uh, one of the most uh, one of the Weirder, but sort of compelling images he talks about are the sexual rituals that take place at Palomar Observatory. That we train the telescope on on Sirius or on Saturn in particular, and then the light of the planet comes through the telescope 
and it is then used to sort of illuminate the rituals that that take place underneath it. And that's kind of interesting because there were rituals that took place on Mount Palomar, completely distinct from anything that he talks about, mostly connected with the OTO, the sort of Crowleyan organization that Jack Parsons is connected to. So again, there's this this connection to there's something that is embedded in reality more than mm-hmm. more than is entirely comfortable. Yeah. Way. I mean, yeah. absolutely. And I think growing up in, you know, downward land, as we were talking about before we started, um, made uh, when I first encountered his writings, so much of it made sense and made me look at where I was in a different way as well and put some of those pieces together. So I, I do think that there is some kind of underlying truth of the, and, and it's a, it's a particular elite though. You know, we're not saying that it's all like one single um, world or American, you know, elite, but this is like a particular uh, Southern and Western kind of like what Carl Oglesby would have called like the, the cowboy establishment, you know, this wasn't like your, your East coast fo- folks, um, but I think it really does provide some kind of insight into that. It's one of those things you get you get some dramatic hints of. I think in the in the first season of True Detective, yeah, um, they, they it, it's sort of steering around in in the same kind of direction. Um, and a lot of you know Downer's experiences in the South, but I'm not sure it's unique to that. When we talk about the elite. But which we basically mean wealthy, powerful, influential people. I mean, they're always wealthy, powerful, influential people. Uh, but it becomes a, I think another way to look upon that, there are not only people who, who are wealthy and powerful and influential, but who also view themselves in some way, rightly or wrongly, as peculiarly illuminated in some way that their position, that their wealth, and that their connections have brought them, they believe, knowledge that other people don't have. You know, and that, of course, brings us to the whole idea of the Illuminati. But right. remember, but you can go back and just kind of ground yourself on what Illuminati, and this is why I think it's a generic term, because it simply means those who are those those who know something that others don't. You know, in... In early Christendom, Christians were Illuminati because they were illuminated to the truth of the gospel. So we can really can just simply describe anyone who thinks that they have um, they have some access to truth or to a greater reality which other people don't, mm-hmm. which the common mass of humanity is is separated from. And I think then that. Again, what you know, whether that's true, whether they do, or whether it's complete BS, doesn't really matter if they believe in it and they begin to act on it. And it doesn't take too much for people to start thinking that they're special. I mean, first of all, if you're if you're wealthy, you're special, aren't you? And especially here in the old USA, go out here in the USA. That's that's how we measure these things. You are you are indeed well. Um. Yeah, I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald said that the rich are different from us. And while he may not have been meaning this specifically, there's always this, you know, very few people 
become, let's say, a Bill Gates or become an Elon Musk, you know, achieve just, you know, more money than God. Okay, so much money that you can just buy anything that you want. And that, that itself is, is a kind of heady idea that people have. So much wealth that you can buy anything that you want. Except, you know, maybe longevity, but you can even do that. They think they're trying. Okay. You've you've now got enough. You can take a hundred billion dollars and put it into into funding something. It will keep you alive forever. And if anybody has a chance of doing that, it's you. It's not Joe Blow over here. It's you. So, you know, the question that at some point, you know, late at night, lying in bed, if you're Bill Gates, I would suspect, or if you simply have so much money that you can buy whatever you want, you would have to ask yourself the question, why me? Okay, was this really because I was just smarter than everybody else? Uh, really, you know that's not true. Yeah. Right? You know that at some point you've encountered smarter people who don't have you know, a pot to piss in. Okay, They haven't gotten anything. Or you cheated them out of the money, whatever it was. But that then it seemed almost, if not in every case, it would be common to believe that in some way you've been chosen. Mm-hmm. You have been given this great wealth to achieve something, which I think, you know, it's, it's potentially a very dangerous idea. Right. right. You've got some kind of mission to save humanity or to save the world or to extend your life forever or your life and your friends. And it can manifest in just philanthropic or positive things sometimes too. It can, it can. Um, but it can also, again, have interesting psychological effects on people, but it would also in some ways make you uh, think of this way. You got all of this wealth, all of this influence, but you're still mortal. Mm-hmm. Okay? There's the one thing that you can't buy. Unless there's some other, this would be one of those things that not in every but in some people would attack would would attract them to esoteric doctrines. Yeah. And if everything else is different about their life, then why wouldn't it, their spirituality be right? So yeah, you know, I've been chosen for this. Now I, I need to find out what my mission is, and and this this doctrine, this idea, you know, these concepts, if you want to describe them or occult or otherwise, is the is the one thing that may be the key being able to achieve the one thing that my money otherwise can't get me. And with that being the mindset that's easily exploitable by people, you know, either with those belief systems or organizing them or creating secret societies, you can can get all these people in line with things like that, like you've explored in all your research. Yeah. Well, it always comes down to the question as to who's pulling the strings. So it doesn't mean that just because you have great influence and wealth that you're not being manipulated by somebody else. In fact, if you think about it in some way, you become the perfect mark. Mm-hmm. All right. There's going to be, you know, it's, it's the basic rule of nature, isn't it? If there's something out there to be eaten, there will be something to eat it. And therefore, if there are a lot of, you know, if there are a lot of rich, silly people running around with more money than they know what to do with, someone will come along to find out a way to get away from them. And, and and a time-honored means of doing that is selling them the keys to the universe. I, I think I think in the way that's 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 what Gurdjieff was doing. Um, that's what you know Crowley tried to do, not necessarily terribly successfully, but he wanted to have a lot more wealthy followers. And 
which isn't to argue that it's all fraud, that it's all sort of smoke and mirrors, but that's a part of it. And that's that's one of the main things that in you know investigating people and topics that have to deal with what's broadly termed occultism, esoteric world is that inevitably you run across a huge amount of fraud. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of fraud. And you know, it's the same sort of thing in, in the sort of UFO realm. Branches of that, you know, uh, there's just a lot of people. There's just a lot of fake hoax. I mean, it's just. And often not very good ones. But you have to be cautious of sort of, you know, throwing out the proverbial baby with the proverbial bathwater in this case. And, and I think in the in the esoteric realm, sort of in the occult room realm, the reason why you find all of this fakery is that it's just easier to perform a trick than it is to perform the real thing. I think even Crowley alludes to that in some cases. You know, real magic is hard because, you know, you have to get all these entities to cooperate with you. Okay. So you can either go out and go through this whole thing and conjuring the spirit of Barnsabelle and drawing squares on the floor and maybe not being torn to pieces, or you, you can just, you know, bamboozle them with a trick. And the audience really isn't going to know the difference if you do it right. And the other thing is that if you learn your tricks well, they always work. And it looks the same. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it, trickery is sort of the lazy occultist way of, of operating in this case. I wanted to ask just real quick, is there anything in particular um, that you encountered in this, uh, this new batch of writings that became this book that um, was illuminating to you or, or fit a puzzle piece and questions that you had previously? Well, I think I mentioned his his mention that he was trying to reassemble his memories, and and I think that was that gave me some sort of, you know what what this guy was doing, what the, the whole purpose of this was. So I think it, it gave me a sense. I guess his motivation that seemed to give some kind of explanation for what his motivation, and that's where I think something happened to him. Okay, and that could be something that you know. He either became addicted to drugs or he became, you know, it, it was alcoholism. It could have been that, that, you know, I could do a, a good whammy on your memory as well. Um, but that at least gave me, I think, that kind of insight. The rest of it, I think maybe there's a... It's certainly many of us have had enough time, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and he's also well acquainted with Mexico. He, he, he spent some time there. Um, you know, his descriptions of things like Nahual magic is, you know, roughly correct, you know, from an outsider, from a gringo's view of things. That's, that's probably pretty much the way you look. It also, um, you know, there were various things, there weren't many edits in the manuscript, but we might say that it was also clear that he didn't, he had a somewhat bad, you know, something bad had happened to him in Mexico. There, there it was a distinct bitterness which was left over something that that went wrong, and so that's that's another part of the story that we really really don't know about. 
Uh, and, and I guess the whole part of it that was maybe the most intriguing to me is a little episode in Mexico City in the late 30s where he's talking about his encounter with Leon Trotsky. Who yeah. knew? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, the minute I saw that, it's like, oh, yeah, it's Trotsky. Because I think at the time I was first reading that, I was actually working on this whole thing about Trotsky's assassination. So I was, you know, was very familiar with Trotsky's time. So, yeah. So, again, Downard's Trotsky was in Mexico at that time. So he could have met him. Now, did Trotsky have some sort of electric zapping machine so that when people came to the court, they'd be electrocuted? I've never heard that before. But it's just kind of, you know. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Can I say it's impossible? No, I don't know. Um, and and he he mentions uh, some some other people who were there as as well. He, he also sort of weirdly talk about people sort of out of context. There's in the in the in the lost writings of this in this new volume, he'll he'll make these references and it has to do with Florida to this guy named and Mexico Kiki Enriquez. En, Enrique, I think it says. And, and that, again, if you go through the press, doubted in the late 30s, early 40s, lived near Key West, Florida. He and his wife ran a little place called the Sugar Loaf Inn, a tavern hotel uh, near Key West. And there is a guy who's very, very prominent in that area. Um, and, and he is the judge in Key West. And his name shows up in the paper all the time, and his nickname is Kiki. And anybody who is pretty much arrested for anything is going to show up in front of that judge. And I'll bet you at some point, one of those people who showed up in front of that judge was James Shelby Downard. But, you know, he never describes, he always describes him as something else. But he's talking about, you know, the name is in the place is too close for that to be mm -hmm. simply a coincidence. Although Downard sort of transforms him more into this kind of villainous figure. But yeah, the guy is there. I'm sure there was a lot in Downard's mind that just got jumbled and it just came out in these writings. Yeah, I, th I think it's a, uh, you can always think about them in some way that maybe there was some kind of cell, well, self therapy. You know, that he, again, he's trying to process. Yeah, process this material, put together bits and pieces, and this is this is the story that emerges from it. And I think that's why the story has real people and in real places, and is describing. There is, I guess, maybe to go back to the obvious. There is there is a layer, a substantial layer of reality in what Downard is talking about. And the question then becomes, where does that really go into fantasy? Where does that? And you can find there's one place clearly where he, he tells two different versions of the same story. And that's the one where there's a version, the one that's in Carnivals of Life and Death. He's told to go collect these grave goods, a bunch of stuff which is hidden in a tomb in a cemetery. 
And he goes to the cemetery, into the tomb, of course, narrowly avoiding death by some infernal device. And this is where he finds these strange books with his name on them. And then also this, what is what is pretty clearly a description of a cipher machine, uh, which has this name on it called the Dayton Witch, which is always kind of fascinating to me because I can never find any trace of any. I mean, what he's describing is something like the German Enigma machine. And those were around. So he's describing a device that actually existed at the time, but under a name that doesn't exist. So in one version of the story, he finds these things in a tomb. In another version of the story, which I think he mentions in the newer writings, he finds them in a barn. Now that's interesting because he's telling basically the same story and the same things, but the setting changes, which means that his memory of that has changed. So, which is the real story? And did he just deliberately embellish it, or did it just remember it at different times? Did he ever notice that he told the story in two different ways? We don't know. That is the limbo of lost memories, as you call it. Yes, indeed. Well, that was a that was great to get you on to uh, wrap up uh, downer for a long time, and uh, I would definitely recommend everyone check out that uh, "Stalking the Great Whore" if you are interested in James Shelby Downard. Um, but we are probably going to switch gears here. And what did you have in mind, Adam? So what I wanted to ask you, Dr. Spence, this is something that has come up in the YouTube channel that I produced. We did this as a topic and the whole Anna Anderson, Anastasia mythology. Um, so I think really what I've kind of narrowed it down to what I really want to ask you is the whole idea of like these Royal imposters, and there being a link to intelligence community and intelligence activities. Um, the main reason that it comes up for me because of Anna Anderson is in 1968, I believe she's in Germany and the Germans or the people that she's living with are pretty sick of her. So this guy that had supported her this entire time, this Russian guy named Gleb Botkin. He was the son of the physician that was killed with the Tsar's family. He actually hid in the, the Apatiev house. He actually hid in the house while the Bolshevik guards were actually like looking for him. He manages to escape eventually to the United States. And in the thirties, he become in the twenties and thirties, he becomes a big supporter of Anna Anderson. Well, he brings her helps to bring her to Charlottesville, Virginia. And she marries this uh, really eccentric college professor named Jack Banahan. I think he was like an English professor or something. And you could actually see him and Anna Anderson on an episode of in search of in the seventies about the whole Anastasia mystery. Yeah. Uh, Web Botkin is probably even more interesting than these two people because of his escape to, from the Soviet Union to the United States. He, um, he apparently eventually ends up in Charlottesville, Virginia. He starts this, and I didn't put this in the, the video, but he starts this, um, it's like this little cult that he has called the order of Aphrodite. Mm-hmm which is basically like he worships. they were monotheistic goddess worshipers. Yes. This little thing that he's got going on 
it, at the University of Virginia at Charlottesville. And he becomes, you know, he, he, I don't know if he was convinced that she was Anastasia, whether he wanted her to be Anastasia, because he knew the real Anastasia. But I'm curious if there is, Charlottesville kind of makes me think of Northern Virginia. It makes me think of intelligence, that there's some, some intelligence community. And all this is kind of going on under the nose of the, um, you know, you got the CIA in Virginia. You got all this kind of, you know, all this apparatus that's there. And there's the university itself. I'm just curious what your thoughts on on some of that is, uh, some of these like royal imposters and whether there's some of this could be intelligence uh, networks and operations. Well, that's a very interesting question. So simple answer to it. Yeah, probably. But how? Um, I guess the other question might be is that do I think that Anna Anderson was Anastasia? Absolutely not. All right. No. Um, it's pretty good. They're all they're all killed. All right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but it's intriguing. And then she's actually I think at last count there are 10 or 11 people who at some point after 1970 after 1918 claim to be just anastasia okay there are almost as many who claim to be her brother alexei there are a couple of tatianas and a few olgas running around a couple of other of her sisters oddly i've never seen yeah. her mate marie but i'm sure there's one somewhere so it's been a very popular thing to pretend that you're one of the family. And, and part of the reason you could do that is that, uh, you know, really well into the, you know, for, for decades, there were no physical remains. Uh, there were no bodies. And when there were no bodies, you know, no corpus delecti, uh, the possibility of survival uh, in, in increases. And, and there, there have been people who've been, uh, been fascinated by the, the idea of survival. So, um, some years back, uh, I was acquainted with a woman who was who was working on a book and published a book called um, The Plots to Save the Czar. Uh, her name is Shay McNeil. Very nice, good researcher. Uh, but Shay approached me because she was very interested. She, she had become a, I think it's fair to say, a convert to the idea that not just Anastasia or, you know, maybe a sister or two, but the whole family had survived, that none of them were killed. The whole kit and caboodle, the czar, the czarist, and all the kitties were spirited out of Russia and lived happily ever after uh, in India or somewhere else. And I had to admit that from the beginning, that seemed to be a highly unlikely idea. But yeah, it was very interesting. But from the from the material that she had she had collected, the one thing that was clear is that even though that wasn't true there were people who were working very hard to make it look as if that was true. I mean, this, this, this wasn't accidental. There, there was a concerted effort, I think, from various quarters to create and perpetuate the idea that everything from the whole family to individual members of the family had survived. And... To make that work, you know, what what in, in Anna Anderson's case, she's really this gal named Franciska Shankowska. She's essentially a young woman from Poland, probably with a history of mental illness, 
rescued at, in, in Berlin um, after an attempted suicide, ends up in a mental hospital. And so one of the things that you've got there is that you have a, again, a kind of interesting psychological test subject. You've got someone who already has a fairly thin grasp on reality. And in her case, doesn't is either forgotten, is either traumatically negated much of her personal life, or doesn't remember it anymore. Now think of what you can do with that. No. You've got someone who has a kind of amnesia no. and doesn't really remember who they are or doesn't want to remember who they are. Now, what you do, what's what you, and you are this mysterious person, you fill in the blanks. You know, sort of what we were just talking about, sort of. You now give them an identity. And I think that's what someone did. They deliberately fed her information because she did indeed have a lot of details about the imperial court. Details that she would never have gotten on her own. Let's put it this way. She wasn't Anastasia. She didn't grow up there. But she had that information, and that had to have been given to her by others. That'd be an attractive life if you were a nobody from Poland. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it gave her something to believe in. And, and that that's one of the things that works, is that I, I think she actually believed she was Anastasia. She didn't remember who she had originally been. And, I think eventually she came to believe that. I think eventually she did. I think at first, yeah, I think you're right. She she had amnesia. She didn't know. But I think that eventually all, all the people that came to see her and all the people that were convinced and I and I really think that there was a there was a there was a wishful thinking. It was almost like there was this you could really say that this was like a shared trauma from the Russian immigre community. They wanted something like this to be true. They wanted a member of the royal family to have survived. So they just made it happen, essentially. Yeah, I think you're absolutely the the, des, the desire for something to be true is, is very powerful. And, and that's really how you begin to construct your own reality is so you, you construct, you know, in the absence of a real Anastasia, you create a fake one, a, you know, a relatively good imitation. And that's why. In Gleb Butkin's case, you know, he would—he was supposedly convinced because she would know details about. Uh, for instance, he—he was—he was an artist, and he had made illustrations. And one of the things that he remembered was making these kind of caricatures or drawings with the with the, the czar's children. Now he had, he, had, he had played with it. Excuse me. Excuse me a second. While I shut a uh, door to keep a dog away. So. Uh, and that was what convinced him because she knew all of these little details. And his idea was, well, she has to be Anastasia. No one else other than my childhood playmate that I played together would know that. Well, of course, other people in the household did. Okay. One of the things to remember about things like royal households is that there's always someone watching. The servants. <laughs> Which, in many cases, people tend to forget because servants just sort of come and go and fade in the background. But remember, you know, they're watching everything. Nothing tends to escape them. They trade this in this information back and forth. So it comes out of the question uh, of what would be my theory as to, as to who is the they who fed this information, who created Anna Anderson and why? And who created her, uh, I would place the biggest money on was Soviet intelligence. Mm -hmm. Soviet state. 
I was telling Interesting. Adam when we were talking about this that that would be a great way to collect and attract and get information on the white Russians if you kind right. of put this flagpole out there. Uh, it's also a good way to get money because for years, one of the things that Anna Anderson did was that she carried on a legal battle with her supposed mother's family. So she's the czar's daughter, but her mother, the Empress Alexandra, remember, is German, not Russian. And she is Alex of the House of Hesse-Darmstadt, which was still, even in the post-World War II period, one of the wealthiest noble families in Germany. And if she could be legally proven or accepted as the actual Anastasia, she would be heir to her mother's share of the family estate in the West, which was substantial. That's also why the biggest legal opponents of hers were her supposed in her supposed family, because the family, the Hesse-Darmstadt family would never accept her and fought tooth and nail to have her established as a fraud. So it comes down again to the money that they would they would want to have. The, the initial reason I think that Soviet intelligence created Anna Anderson was to get there. They needed some way to ferret out where czar's funds were stashed in the west now in all likelihood the russian imperial family didn't have quite as much money abroad as everybody thought they did but they had some i mean for instance there were investment portfolios in england alone that were specifically the children's they weren't the czars they they belonged to the children and those were large amounts of money and one of the things to keep in mind is that in particular, the Soviet regime in its early years in power, the one thing that they don't have their hands on, they're desperately short of, is what we talk about in terms of hard currency. And it's an interesting little detail that I think about a week, just about a week before the family is killed, one of the things that the Council of People's Commissars do in Moscow is that they pass a law, an edict, nationalizing, essentially arguing that everything that belonged to the previous imperial family, all of its members, is now the property of the Soviet state. They demand that that is theirs. And to me, that's kind of interesting because, you know, on, on let's say on July 10th, you now establish that all of the assets that belong to these people are now ours. And then a week later, they're all dead. And I think that also explains why you had to get rid of the entire family, because on the one hand, there were supposed to be no living claimants who could come in and establish that. But then later, you would need to create a living claimant that, that could sort of be the, the mole that would ferret that out. Because they're simply establishing the whole idea was, was for her to figure out where that money was to raise legal issues, to file suits, to get representation, and find out where those assets were so that later the Soviet regime could try to attach them because that was the biggest problem was trying to figure out where the money was. So my simple argument, which you know I still argue it's my story and I'm sticking to it, is that uh, the, the imperial family was murdered to get control of their assets. 
and that later fake members of the family, at least in the case of Anna Anderson and perhaps others, were created as a means of trying to locate and secure those assets in the West. Surprise, surprise, it's all about money. <laughs> it easily is. <laughs> See, I would have thought it probably would have been the opposite, that that someone like Anna Anderson would be used as a propaganda tool by the United States against the Soviet Union. Well, it's it's not to say that she may not have been as well. Right, right. Um, you enter into, there's another... The name Michael Golanevsky ring any bells? Because this, the, the, if you wanted to find the, 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 a very clear cross pollination between intelligence and a claimant to essentially to the, the czar's throne, it's in Mikhail or Michael Golanevsky. Golanevsky was a Soviet defector. Actually, he was a Polish communist defector in 1960. And um, he had been, uh, he had made contact uh, with Western British and American agents in the late 1950s. And he'd, he'd turned over a lot of information. He was, he was instrumental in exposing a Soviet spy in Britain by the name of George Blake. Very important Soviet spy there, a whole thing called the Portland, Portland Spy Ring. And um, I think he still gets credit for being one of the defectors who betrayed more Soviet agents in the West than just about anybody else. He, he turned a lot of them over. So Golinevsky was Polish. He had served in the Polish Communist Intelligence Service, but he, he also appears to have been a, a KGB asset inside the allied Polish Communist Intelligence Service because, you know, they were Poles and Russians don't trust them. So the KGB would have its own people working inside that organization. So one of the things about defectors, and it was true for Golanevsky and it's true for every one of them, is this a real defector or is it a fake defector? Because it's the, it's the old story of the Trojan horse. You're always trying to get people inside the walls of your enemy. And one of the ways that you do that is you have someone who goes that I'm, I'm coming over and I'm bringing all these secrets with me and I'll tell you all of these things. But of course, what that does inevitably is that it, it gives them access to one of the things that they're going to find out is how much the other side knows. So by handing over information, to the Americans. The Americans inevitably are in their response going to tell them what they already know and what it is they don't know. So this is why in the CIA you had people like James Jesus Angleton and his obsession with Soviet moles and, and defectors who are in this case potentially very, very dangerous people. And they can be they can be giving you a lot of useful information. Right. This this is one of the one of the criticisms that some people had of Golinevsky is that yeah, Golinevsky is, you know, he's he is in fact betraying a lot of Soviet assets, but they don't, and very often they're assets that either seem to have been used up or were maybe marginal to some degree. But is he doing that because he's he's really turned on his former masters and he's now come over totally to our side, or is he doing that to win our confidence? so that he can worm his way deeper into our organization. 
So uh, Golianovsky defected in 1960, and then about a year later in 1961, there's another Soviet defector, Anatoly Galitsyn. And Galitsyn is, um, you know, has nothing particularly good to say about Golianovsky. And before Golitsyn has been around very long, there's a third defector, Yuri Nosenko, who comes over in about 1963 or 1964. And then you get into this argument. I mean, the trick of them is that, you know, is that Nosenko is arguing, I'm the real defector. Golianovsky is a fake. Golianovsky is a mole. Okay, all the information he's giving you is to deceive you. And there were people in the FBI and CIA who believed Nosenko, and there were some who believed Golitsyn, and there were others who thought that Golanevsky was the real deal. The point is, all three of these guys actually provided useful organization, but they all couldn't be real defectors. One or more of them was a fake. And which one was it? Then, in the midst of all of this, Golinevsky, you know, just sort of seems to go off his rails and starts claiming that I am the Tsarevich Alexei, right? I'm Anastasia's little brother, okay? Right. I'm right. a hemophiliac kid. Now, there were some big problems with that, okay? Alexei was born in 1904. He had hemophilia. Golinevsky doesn't have hemophilia, and by all documentation, he was born in 1904. 22. He's 18 years younger than the czar. So what was his explanation for that? Well, you know, I just got over it. As I got older, I got over hemophilia. <laughs> oh, by Rasputin the way, one of the, it, right? yes, one of the things that hemophilia does is it makes you look younger. I didn't know that. So <laughs> there. That, that, that almost reminds me of like a Martian super soldier type of thing that you hear now. Just like how I was age regressed and I was sent back in time. And yes, yeah. you know, uh, well, I, he probably would have come up with that at the time. Yeah. So, and he, and he gets people to believe him. Yeah, there are people that argue, yes, yes, he, he must, you know, despite all of the problems with his story. Okay. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't look like Alexei. There's, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's a story that on the surface of it is just absurd. Okay, it's bunk. But nevertheless, there were people who wanted to believe this or claimed that they did. And at that point, uh, amidst all of the other stuff going on, the you know the question as to who's the real defectors and which are the fake ones, Golinevsky is sort of, uh, you know, his, his money is cut off and he's pushed aside and therefore his claims increase. He actually, at one point, a couple of years later on 1965, he and another claimant to be Anastasia, a woman by the name of Eugenia Smith. I would always wanted to get Annie Anderson and her in the same room and see if there was like, you know, an antimatter explosion. So, uh, I mean, what would, what would happen if you get two people claiming to be the same person together in the same room? So they met and they and they supposedly recognized each other and hugged, oh, sister, brother. And then a couple of years later, they decided that, no, that wasn't true and that you're a fake. And they started pointing fingers at each other. But he had this very small but intensely loyal group of people who all the way, I think, into the late 80s or 90s, I think he lived until like 93, were still convinced that all evidence, all logic to the contrary that he was the czar. So this also increased some people's argument this, that this was all part of a destabilization campaign. That here, by the way, is the, the interesting, the most provocative argument about Golinevsky, Golitsyn, and Nosenko, these three right-in-a-row defectors, 
is that they were all fake. And that the whole purpose of this was to simply confound your opponents. So remember, you think of this way. You've, you've got three different people who all sort of defect, all provide information, and yet are pointing the others and arguing the no, you can't trust. Yeah, it, 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 it sows confusion. And if that was your goal, you succeeded in that case. And that therefore, part of his, his, his you know, sort of crazy claim in the midst of all of this, that, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm the Tsarevich. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the heir to the Russian throne. Well, then what do you do? I mean, uh, there there still were people, even in the CIA, who tended to believe that. There were others thought that now this is just embarrassing. This guy's wacko. And so we should we should separate ourselves from him. It's the um, it, it's it's the great game of disinformation. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's one of those it, there's a very important thing to understand the difference between misinformation and disinformation. So misinformation is just wrong. You know, you ask somebody for directions and they give you wrong directions. You know, they try, but they just didn't remember it correctly. Disinformation, though, to be good, has to be mostly true. There have to be verifiable truths in it because the purpose of disinformation is not just to misinform, but to guide, to steer, you know, one way to put it, the purpose of disinformation is to lead the hounds away from the fox. I said, speaking of hounds. (laughs) And that's, that's, this is where you get into these levels of deception. I mean, deception, not just on one level, but on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. You send in one fake, you send in another fake to confound it. You send in another fake to confound things more than that. So the end result is to confound your opponent. So they are left unable to know exactly what the truth is, possibly to blind them from something else. Yeah. I mean, that would sow um, distrust in future potential real. Right. Effectors. The point is you can't trust defectors. Yeah. You never really know for sure. And, you know, you even get, you know, Angleton's ideas that the more convincing a defector is, the more likely it is that they're a mole because things just don't happen that way. It's, it's just it's sort of too good to be true in some right. respects. But it's always this kind of mind game, which, which is being being played. And so, yes, I mean, Golanevsky is the, is the clearest case of where you, you know, you've got a guy who's a former... Eastern Bloc intelligence officer that then claims to be a defector who then also claims to be the Tsarevich um, for purposes of, I think, confusion and and disinformation. In in Anna Anderson's case, yeah, I, I think it's about the money, and I think that she was fed that information early on in Berlin in the 20s. Um, in fact, I could probably point the figure at the main Soviet representative or diplomat in Germany who handled that whole operation, and that was Karol Radek. Okay. Who, like everybody else, gets, you know, done in by Stalin later on. Um, but that may well have been because Radek knew too many things. He becomes an inconvenient witness. Yeah, and the the whole thing about them, about her possibly inheriting, you know, maybe some land from from Hesse 
the, the House of Hesse. Could that have been like that might have given them a foothold in the West, kind of like how they kept Rudolf Hess in Spandau Prison in West Berlin, just so they had that little bit of a, a little bit of a toehold into the West and they could spy and well, you know, I think what they were after really was trying to figure out where the bank accounts were so that they could yeah. they could go after those bank accounts to claim the money. And you know, you 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 create you you create a false heir to go in and you, you can find movies with the same sort of plot. You know, someone shows up claiming to be the lost daughter or son of someone and they're going to get money for the state, but they're actually just you know from the estate for themselves, but this is eventually going to be handed over to someone else. And you know, they, to add to that kind of confusion, the Soviets were establishing secret bank accounts of their own. I mean, that was never, although oddly enough, it was never really the problem in the long run of of collaboration between Western financial institutions and the Soviets. Okay. It's always about money. That, that's what banks are for. They want deposits. Swiss banks in particular, they don't care where the money comes from. Yeah. So, and that was one of the things in the... Uh, Really beginning around the same time, beginning around 1918 and all the way through the 30s, there were numerous high Soviet figures who established personal bank accounts in Switzerland and stashed money in them. Because initially that was because, you know, you never knew whether this thing was going to last, you know. Uh, yeah, so there, you know, there, there was this whole sort of civil war going on before it goes on during the early 20s. And so there's always some chance that um, if things fell apart, we need somewhere to go and have uh, a fund to, you know, for revolution number two. And so we'll put money into banks that never ask questions about where money comes from. And the more gold and other material we can get our hands on. And I mean, that itself is, you know, one of the interesting little details is that uh, during 1920 and 1921, the Soviets somehow export abroad, uh, you know, around 200 million gold rubles, gold bullion, something. The last of the Tsarist gold reserve vanishes over a period of about 18 months once they get their hands on it. They don't hang on to it. Because and, and you can find in that period that there's all kinds of, of Russian gold showing up in New York and in Paris and elsewhere. And that, that's what this is. It's pretty it's pretty obvious. Okay. Money's vanishing here, showing up there. And that was to again sort of establish a untraceable financial foothold in the West. Uh, gold is easy enough, you know, melt a bar of gold, put another stamp on it. And that was one of the things that was done in Sweden. You simply had bars of gold that had the imperial eagle on them, and they were melted down in Sweden by the Inskilda Bank, and they were rebranded, and then they were sold in the West. They weren't Russian gold anymore. And that was to, you know, among other things, fund um, Soviet subversive and intelligence activities all around the world. Mm -hmm. Pave the way for the world revolution, comrades. Okay. Right. That takes money. <laughs> that is used later to yeah. uh, kind of build up this one world government, new world order conspiracism to prove that 
communism and capitalism and everything was all part of one big plot and that it was really the these like financial banking families etc so which so yeah, is more complex than that as you pointed out and researched in the finance and the bolshevik revolution too and all that right and i think that your book i think reading that book really clears that up why there was a support for even the communist revolutions because they saw the czar as an oppressor and that was really the reason why and the, the, the czarist regime in some ways was well it would it was ideally it was an absolute monarchy. Now that that kind of changed around 1906. There was a there was a there was a Russian parliament that was created, but it didn't really have any power. I mean, this is you know without going into a whole thing about 20th century Russian history, yeah. the Tsarist regime was a kind of anachronism. Uh, it was in many ways a very medieval institution that had in some way managed to survive into the 20th century, and there were lots of people who saw that as an obstacle. And that there might be more modern thinking people to do business with, and that's what it comes down to. And it's you know, it comes down to the, you know why why is it that that Western banks um, you know would loan money to the Soviets? And and by the way, that was <laughs> commonplace. Um, you know, the, the Soviet the USSR had a huge debt, primarily to Western European, especially Belgian banks. They they'd never shied away from doing that, and, they, uh, and the, the explanation for that is just glaringly simple. It has nothing to do with ideology. It has to do with the fact that banks and businesses like Ford Motor Company are in business to make money. That's what they do. So uh, the best example of that is Henry Ford. You know, Henry Ford often gets pointed at. Ah, oh, Henry Ford did business with the Nazis. He did. All right. Henry Ford also did business with Stalin. No problem with that. Much earlier on. One of the, right off the bat, by 1919, you know, literally, you know, the the, the blood isn't even dried in the Apatia house where the families get. And the Ford Motor Company was willing and eager, uh, despite a lack of recognition and a supposed boycott of the Soviet regime, to sell them everything that they could. And that's why you know, the best example of that, you know, when Stalin later on will unleash collectivization, you know, this whole thing, the whole idea of basically reinserting the peasantry and herding all of those peasants onto collective farms. And the way you did that, what made this whole thing work were tractors. Mm -hmm. Because what you're basically doing, what's actually going on in collectivization is that it was not about making agriculture more efficient. It was about transferring millions of laborers from the countryside into industry yeah and and it worked in that case i mean you know that's why by the time world war ii breaks out there is a there is a very large industrialized russia where there wasn't before but you had to do that very quickly so you had to get all these peasants into factories and to replace them to make that work you needed tractors and those tractors all of them that were used in order to accomplish that were licensed models of the Fordson tractors. Ford Motor Company signed an agreement. They set up a plant outside Moscow to manufacture them. The same architectural firm that built the River, River Rouge automobile plant, Albert Kahn and Associates, had an office in Moscow, and they constructed that factory. So, in the same, and therefore, in some ways, collectivization, the success of the Stalinist five year plan was only accomplished with the aid of Henry Ford. <laughs> now, how about that? And you had that guys Henry like Ford a, was a secret commie? No, that's because Henry right. Ford was a businessman. 
Right. It was all about money. Uh, you had guys like Armand Hammer, you know, who went over there and, and was sympathetic to the Bolsheviks. But even that was all about just getting capital into the Soviet Union and investing. Yeah, yeah Armand Hammer's daddy, uh, Julius Hammer. Julius Hammer was a, you know, a, a, I think a very committed Marxist Leninist. You know, he'd met Lenin. He's a founding member of the Communist Party. He was also, by the way, a successful businessman. This, this is one of these things that seemingly is kind of weird. A lot of commies are very good at business. <laughs> I mean, they're going to knack for this type of thing. Um, there was a, there was a whole, there was a story that used to be told about, uh, Trotsky spent some time in, in, he spent about three months in New York before the Russian revolution broke out. And so there are all sorts of stories that are connected to that. And one is that, and you'll still read this in a lot of places. That was that when he was in New York, he had a, he had a bit part, uh, playing a Russian revolutionary in a movie. And uh, it's actually a thing called, it was a movie called My Official Wife. And supposedly there are this, there's this whole group. And there actually is a scene in it where you got like these revolutionary, these beardos, you know, plotting a revolution. And that one of them is Trotsky. It's a great story, but alas, it's not true because, you know, the, the timing doesn't work. But it, it actually led uh, one guy to sort of come up with this, this sort of alt fiction story in which Trotsky somehow doesn't make it back to Russia, stays in the U.S., and eventually becomes the head of Metro Golden Mare. Okay, goes to Hollywood and becomes a film producer and becomes one of the biggest film producers of all time. And, you know, you could kind of see that. I mean, he's, you know, I'm, I'm, is he going to become like the guy that built the Red Army or is he going to become the guy that builds a huge Hollywood studio? Right. The, the basic organizational techniques were, were sort of there in the same kind of person. Uh, and I, I think it's also a way that you can find that, um, you know, Julius Hammer was uh, a successful businessman. You know, he knew how to make money. Uh, I, I don't think his son Armand was, was ideological. I think he was just greedy. But he built upon the relationships that his father had built. And so the Hammer family, you know, dad sent Armand and one of his other brothers, I think Victor, over to Moscow to manage the family business, which was, you know, really close knit with, you know, your dad knows Lenin. That, that's that's pretty good. Um, and so they would drive around, you know, and he's known in Moscow in the 20s as the capitalist prince. But he's there, you know, setting up businesses funded by his businessman, commie dad. Uh, and then the other thing he does is is fence artworks. That's basically what he was doing. So the Soviets are, are confiscating, you know, things like Fabergé eggs. So you ever try to figure out how all those Fabergé eggs, these fancy little, you know, highly decorative, intricate pieces of art got out of Russia into the West, largely through Arm and Hammer. Because Western collectors, you know, rich people wanted them. And he would arrange for them to get them at a considerable price. And it worked to everyone's advantage. Soviets sold them, got hard currency off the books, and the collectors in the U.S. got a bread, shiny Fabergé egg. And you could even, you know, and Moscow, you can argue, is that come the revolution, comrade, we'll get them back. <laughs> Just right. know, kind of loaning them. 
more thought about the imposters. I mean, the imposter stuff is really interesting. You know, Serfiel, he's looked a lot into the Jesse James stuff too, which is bizarre in and of itself. <laughs> Have you ever looked thing. too much into J. Frank Dalton? Have I looked into J. Frank Dalton? Yeah. I've heard about it. No. <laughs> it's right okay. up your alley. Okay. Is oh. that one of the Dalton brothers? Uh, no, he was a uh, or just a guy person who claimed James. to be Jesse James in 1948 at the tender age of uh, 105. It's a whole thing. It's much like, uh, in fact, like the the downward stuff really gave me a good uh, perspective for like understanding it because it, it resulted in um, this a few books of this treasure hunting lore stuff about secret societies and knights of the golden circle and the rebel the gold buried gold buried treasure yeah. yeah yeah but well, it's just it's uh some of those books are similar to like these downer books in that they're really crazy kind of tall tales and yarns but contain all of the these uh little bits of like real esoteric history um so yeah same kind of thing but but there's another pretender same kind of thing like it was really about hustling people to find buried treasure and a lot of these guys probably were actual outlaws might have even been uh quantrillions and in, in the missouri and western theater of the civil war but um this was kind of their last hurrah to mm -hmm. pretend to be all these uh famous outlaws who were dead already well there's always a thing about celebrity and yeah one of the other things about royals is that they're really kind of the first celebrities I mean, yeah, you know, they were the only people who had good clean clothes in the period public, and they had you know, you know everything they did was was to, was topical. Uh, sometimes people have just a hard time believing that that someone who seemed to be so important in in life can be dead, and so you can create this. You know, there's another uh, yeah another guy really the, the the sort of original mystery man that I started investigating and still do. I wrote a book is is this supposed spy Sidney Riley, okay? The sort of Riley Ace of Spies type of thing, which takes us back to revolutionary Russia and the rest of it. And and there again, there there were there were questions at both ends of his life. First of all, you don't know who he actually was to begin with. There's there's no definitive beginning to this guy and he just sort of becomes different people over time so one of the things the one thing that you do know is that the whole sydney riley identity is completely fake it, it, it's based upon a, a passport that was provided him by scotland yard basically to get him out of the country because he in some way become become compromised but it's, it's not real there was never a real person at that time so this is this is a person pretending to be someone else and developing a persona to go with that. And at the opposite end, there's this whole question as to whether he really went back to Russia in 1925, was caught by the Soviets and executed, or whether he defected. And whether he just continued to live on under a different name. And there, there are claims and bits and pieces of evidence to the contrary. And the reality is that there's just not enough to prove anything. He just, he disappears. So, or, you know, the one way you could put it is that the character of Sidney Riley dies in 1925. But he never really existed in the first place. He was just a character that someone else was playing. 
And did that person who played Riley just continue on playing someone else? Or was that just a fiction that someone invented? You know, again, was it was it useful to perpetuate the idea that he might be alive? Because that would create uncertainty in in other quarters. And I'll tell you, having looked into that for, you know, 35 years, I don't know. You can't tell. There's not enough to definitively prove anything, which is the purpose. It's the purpose of disinformation. In many ways, it, it's it's not to, in, in apparently in the goal of revealing something, what you do is further muddy the waters until it's impossible to be certain of anything. You know, um, it, it was very, I think it was very easy at that time period to just have an assumed name or an, a whole entire assumed identity. I remember uh, watching, I think it was the first episode of your, uh, the one about the, about the occult or no, about the crimes, I think. And it was about the, uh, the, the movie producer that was shot and killed in the 1920s, yeah. which at the time was a very famous case. And in that whole thing, you just go through the list and no one seemed to be who they actually were, <laughs> who they said they were. Everybody has that's, this. That's how yeah. easy it was to, to just be fake your own death or just take on a whole new identity. Born it was too late man. at that time. Yeah, you get kicked out of the army for stealing. You just go to another state, enlist under a slightly different name, go back and steal some more, go on. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, so, you know, being a cheat and a fraud was easier in the past. You have to be more clever at it today, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there, right. There, exactly. there are people who will, will figure out how to work the new system. Just imagine what you can do with AI. You can Now you can actually create people who don't exist, yeah. but are... Yeah. Uh, really sort of, you know, believable <laughs> examples of, uh, uh, you know, it's like this chat GPT or whatever, you know, that, that, that you know, supposedly college students are using to write, hey, you know, it works. Far for you. you can't tell whether a real person wrote it or not. Well, uh, Dr. Smith, this has been awesome. Well, thank you for coming on and doing this with us tonight. Yes. Um, I'm really, uh, really happy to got your perspective on those couple of, of items and, um, if you can just tell people uh, where they can find you, where they can find your books, um, I guess also great courses. The one we talked about the night, Stalking the Great Horror, which you have the afterword in. So, uh, well, I think Sorry. that and um, and my books, uh, you know, Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, uh, Trust No One, The World of Sydney Riley, um, you know, a book on Aleister Crowley and intelligence, uh, Secret Agent Six Six Six. All of those can be found on Amazon. Those are all out there, uh, I think, uh, available. And uh, in terms of uh, the other work I've done for, for Wondery in the series there, uh, The Real History of Secret Societies, Crimes of the Century, and Secrets of the Occult, uh, I would direct people to the Great Courses Wondrium website. I would note that they, they have constant sales and bargains. So, you know, look for those. And uh, hopefully there will be some more material coming out there. I hope to do further work with them. But I, I, think I am a subscriber to that as well. 
very valuable things that are on there. You look at the great courses and all that stuff. So they have courses on everything you could possibly imagine. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not just like true crime or espionage. It's gardening and ballroom dancing. If you're into the, the, yeah. there you go. All right. there's, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. Stay alive for just for a little bit, but uh, guys, we will uh, be back next week. Um, remember, uh, Strange Realities Conference coming up November 3rd through the 5th. Also, our Patreon, which we got a lot of great stuff. And I'm sure that our uh, presentation with Vincent Trewell went very well. Yes. We haven't done it yet, but uh, I'm sure it went well. And so, if y'all can you tell people where they can find that? You can find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal, where for $10 a month, you can see the monthly Strange Reality streaming presentations, including that uh, most recent one by Vincent Trewell. That's over at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Thank you guys for listening. And uh, we've got some great shows coming up in June. So join us next time on Conspiranormal. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.